0: So, Bob, I have a bunch of patron emails that you and I should read and answer. What do you say, Bob? Yeah, let's let's read them and let's talk re- it over. Let's read them and talk it over. This is the Psychology yeah. in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob?
1: Well, I'm your co-host, and according to a mug I just received, I, 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 made, I made the... the I made the top of the list or something in terms of co host. But um, I listened to the last podcast and I was sounded like such a dork whenever um, you said, Hey Bob, what do you say we read the emails? And I'm like, Yay, let's read the emails I sound like such a dork. So I was trying something different today. I think it was equally that's great... <laughs> I don't <laughs> Anyways, think you, the,
0: I don't think you ever okay. sound like a dork. I think you sound I think you sound just fine. Yeah, and oh. to be specific, you won the most beloved co host award for the 2020 Psychology in Seattle Awards. Wow! And you got a mug that has that uh, listed on it. I do. I have it. So, as as the recipient of the 2020 Most Beloved Co Host Award, what is your speech? Um.
1: Well, okay. Uh, all kidding aside, um, I really like doing this with you. I'm surprised I like doing this with you. I'm kind of an introvert, so. Um, but um, I I feel really fortunate that I get to see you every couple of weeks and we talk about stuff and we get to hang out together and um, I feel um, I feel privileged I feel honored and
0: lucky. The most beloved co-host answers it in the most beloved of ways. Let's mm-hmm. get to an email. Anonymous patron says, "I was wondering if you had advice for how to talk about politics with people who have opposing views." My brother is a Trump supporter, and lately I feel our conversations have become far too emotionally charged. He can get quite nasty towards me, though I'm sure something about my approach is also provoking him in some way. I don't expect to change his mind. I just want a happier relationship with him. What do
1: you think, Bob? Um, I had a friend when I was uh, just out of graduate school, a really good friend at the clinic I worked at lovely man gay grew up in virginia southern baptist so his family um the culture there's homophobic and um he's out here he's having dinner his sister comes to visit she has some homophobic views um and his husband they're out the table and his husband and his sister get into a debate about whether or not you know it's okay to be gay and he's sitting there, and he's really angry and very quiet. And he's angry mostly with his husband for picking a fight. And finally, they both notice that he's been quiet for some length of time. And he, they say to him, well, what do you think? And he says the following, which I will never forget. He says, we get so little time together that I would rather focus on what we have in common than what our differences are. And they both stopped instantly. And then they continued to have a conversation because... You know, disagreement or not, they're family and uh, they want to. You know, she traveled 3,000 miles to be here. They want to, everybody wants to enjoy the visit and nobody wants to be in the fight. So I think his um, invitation to them um, woke him up a bit. So, me, I can sit in a room with people where I have political difference and I don't talk about it because. Because, like you're, like the person who wrote and says, "We're not going to change each other's mind." What, what is the point? There is, there's no upside I can see. Um, so, my advice would be, focus on what you have in common and enjoy one another.
0: Yeah, I agree with all that, and that's really a nice, inspirational story there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have clients with this problem. Uh, I have a close friend with this problem, actually, with his, with his girlfriend. Long-term girlfriend, they aren't talking. They haven't talked since the election, so it's, you know, over a month now. And Mm. because of – they're both extremely uh, on their side, you know. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting because this friend of mine, he's one of those people that posts all the stuff on Facebook and, you know, just really gets riled up. And – to think that his girlfriend is on the on the opposite side and also kind of extremist, I, I I'm actually not surprised they haven't talked to each other given the way that people are these days. I mean, you and I are old, Bob. When when we mm-hmm. were young in our twenties and and teenage years, it's not like political divide wasn't present back then. I mean, the Reagan years in the eighties, people Loved him or hated him uh, the Clinton years people loved him or hated him. it and we tend to look back on those times as if it's this quaint little time, but i i I remember feeling pretty similar back or seeing similar anger and and stakes at, at, that were being talked about with Reagan. It was a nuclear holocaust with Bill Clinton. it was the erosion of the family values or something or our economy you know there were pretty big things at stake back then um so back then though i just don't remember people talking about it is that your is that your take on it too
1: yeah now i you know i have a pretty small world so people not talking about it in my world isn't necessarily indicative of the you know the, the bigger picture. But do you remember but your parents no. talking
0: about it with their
1: friends? No, yeah. No.
0: Do you, I don't even remember knowing anyone's political point of view when I was yeah. uh, in my teenage years and in my twenties. I, I, I just don't remember people thinking about it. And, and actually I had a f- friend, a friend that you know, Jeff, who was conservative yeah. and I, we would have conversations and, we never, I don't think we ever fought once <laughs> about yeah. it. It was just like, huh, well, I don't know. I just, I don't think that way. I kind of see it this way. And, and then we just go on to talk about something else. But today, it, it definitely feels different. It feels like people are talking about it more, which of course raises the risk of conflict. And it also seems more entrenched, just more completely intolerant of other voting practices. <laughs> and you know you can make an argument that the anger is justified for sure honestly but i think that the answer is in that story you told which is let's let's be po- political let's be activists let's vote let's talk but also let's love let's be with each other let's let's trans can we not understand that our relationships and the meaning of our lives transcend politics, <laughs> especially uh, pundits talking and partisanship. can't we understand that are the meaning of our life and the lo- you know, I can't imagine anyone on their deathbed saying, I wish I would have yelled more about politics at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Upper tier patron Vanessa from California says, How can one cultivate a sincere belief that people have inherent worth? I've trained myself throughout my life to tie one's worth to school performance. I asked my therapist why people have inherent worth, and she told me it was something she could explain, Oh, something that she could not explain, but rather a fundamental belief that I just needed to adopt. I understand it logically, but I'm so trained to believe otherwise. End of email. So I read that funny. Essentially, upper tier patron Vanessa is like, I grew up learning that your worth was completely tied to your school performance. My, th- I've been talking with my therapist about it, and my therapist says, no, people have inherent worth beyond that. But I can't really explain it. The therapist is saying you just you just have to believe
1: it and adopt it. Bob, what do you think? Um. Well, I I guess I think a lot of things um when this has come up before with when i'm working with people one of the things that i notice is that when they think about their children even if they don't have children when they project into the future and imagine having a son or a daughter and the son or daughter say in this case you know they didn't do well on a test or something they get a crap grade or something do you, does your love for that person change you know do you feel exactly the same way you feel differently towards them do you get a tainted view and almost to a person they say no of course not you know like it's it's a grade and you know it might have meaning or especially you it might matter because you know grades are um stepping stones uh toward future success and yeah I get it that's there's some truth to that but in terms of do I love my kid yeah I still love my kid doesn't doesn't matter so like I saw a couple this morning and this, a similar question come up where the guy was saying something about, you know, how when his wife is disappointed in him, he he feels like he doesn't have worth and he loses sight of the fact that he needs to know in his bones that no matter what, even when she's disappointed she loves and cares about him. He couldn't even fathom that, but when I said, think about your son for a sec. Your son steals your vodka and wraps your car around a telephone pole. You're madder in shit because... God, what a headache, you know, and all that crap you got to deal with. And there's a lot of wreckage, quote unquote. Um, And does your love for him diminish? And he's like, nah, I'm mad at him. But no, he's the same good kid he was before, right? And when he steps back and he sees his son this way, and I say to him something like, you know, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. He's like, oh, oh, that's what I am. I'm a person as worthy as my son. I'm a person whose need for unconditional love is exactly the same as my son. And I use the word birthright because I happen to think that if you have a DNA mandate to be loved unconditionally, then because you don't get say over to your DNA, it is a birthright. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody um, receives that kind of love and care. I just think we all deserve it, like, you know, like the way you always end the show, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so my point is the following – if Vanessa if Vanessa could um, imagine her daughter and her daughter not doing so well in a class, maybe her daughter has a learning disability you know and she can't do math real well or some kind of language processing problem and you know English is a really hard subject or whatever, right um, or maybe she just doesn't have talent for you know science or something I don't know does her love for her diminished based on that? I would bet Vanessa would say, of course not. And then can Vanessa step into her daughter's shoes just for a moment and see the world from that point of view and imagine that she is her daughter because we are all each other and recognize just for a moment that, oh, I am. We're all turkeys in the same turkey soup. And then I wonder what would happen.
0: You've had a beautiful answer, by the way. I have nothing no, to, nothing you. to add except I, I just. There's a couple idioms there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, uh, we're all tur- we're all the turkeys in the turkey soup, and <laughs> sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. Mm-hmm. I thought it was good for the goose, got go- good for the gander. It, oh? it, I mean, but I don't know. I'm terrible with idioms. You're you're oh. from the East Coast. I always figure East <laughs> East Coast people are better with <laughs> idioms than I am. Um, <laughs> But is that a saying, uh, uh, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander? Yeah. Is it? Is it also the, the same? Is that also a saying, uh, we're all turkeys in the same turkey suit. It might be, but I got that one off of my uh, old supervisor, Lillian. Love it. All right. Anonymous patron from London writes in and says, and this is a multi-parter, we'll, we'll take it one step at a time. You sometimes say... That people with borderline personality disorder will have, quote-unquote, blown out of therapy. What do you mean by that? I have borderline, and my experience is that therapists abandoned me. Although one single time, I did fire a therapist, and I wonder if that was, quote-unquote, blowing
1: out of therapy. Bob, what do you think? Um, yeah, blowing out of therapy, it, it does sound kind of loaded, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you sent this question to me a couple weeks ago, and I thought about it then, and I haven't thought about it since, but now I'm rethinking about it. And I'm remembering something from the um, research project I was on. So this is um, uh, DBT for women who have trouble with suicide and self-harm impulses who meet criteria for borderline personality disorder. And I remember um, one of the statistics that was true is that the dropout rate for um, subjects who were receiving treatment as usual. So this is not DBT, but treatment as one could reasonably expect in the community at large, which is usually either dynamic therapy or CBT or some other kind of therapy, um, but not DBT. The treatment, uh, excuse me, the dropout rate was really high. It was like, I think she's, uh, it's been a while, but I think it was 85%. And the dropout rate for folks who were receiving DBT in that particular study was around fifty percent.
0: Fifty. So five zero. Yeah, five wow. zero. Yeah. Well, wow. yeah, which is still pretty, still pretty high. Yeah, I mean, compared to other kinds of things like yeah. relationship issues, the dropout right. rate might be like twenty
1: percent or something. Right. Right. Or lower. So yeah, right, right. So what I think about this, I think about the following, and that is that. Um, for those of us who have uh, borderline personality disorder or borderline uh, personality disorder uh, traits, we often come out of abuse and trauma. And oftentimes that trauma and abuse um, comes from childhood and from the experience of people that are supposed to love and care for us. So, you know, usually it's parents, but it isn't always parents. So the way I think about it is the following, the person, that i depend on is also the person that's the greatest source of danger yeah and that makes intimacy really tricky like really tricky and so i think that and that's the only way to heal is to do yeah, that right um, in it's order to only, get
0: in order to get better you have to you know go into the lion's den and yeah. sit there and right and like it <laughs> yeah and suffer right. and, and be be afraid and not right. run away, and, right?
1: Yeah, and and not just one session, but for periods of time, right? Like long, longish, probably well, long period of time. And so um, that's fraught. So people are going to drop out. They're um, they're going to fall into conflict with the therapist, not because either the therapist or the client want conflict, but because that's just sort of par for the course. So um, I think the trick is surviving it, just both people surviving the conflict and hanging in with one another anyways and people aren't always successful with that
0: yeah great points and I'm glad you have some remembered statistics on that which Hmm. points to the vulnerability to the relationally traumatized Uh, I mean and when we say relational trauma with borderline often it's severe physical or sexual abuse we're not Mm -hmm. talking about divorce necessarily. We're talking about literally one of your parents sexually abusing you from the age of two until you're 18. I mean, I I had a client who suffered from borderline and she was sexually abused by her father from the age of, I think, five to 15. Mm, God. Like, and it was just her and her parents. Um, And she, as an adult, was still pretty highly involved with her parents, you know? And so... Mm that's not going to do wonders for your trust and your lack of anxiety as you get close to people, right? But that's what you need to do in therapy in order to to get better. And that's what we worked on. And uh, it was was a lot of emotion from her. So what I mean by blowing out of therapy, and I don't know where I got that from, I'm just going to take a guess. I mean, you don't think I made that up, right? That's that's a saying. No, right? that's yeah. a saying. Yeah, yeah, people say that, right? Uh, that usually what that's referring to, and I guess that's sort of like clinical consultation talk. You would never write that in a progress note. So it must be something that therapists say to each other. And what it means is that uh, it depends on the context. But what I mean it in the borderline discussions is when a client with borderline is, you know, being triggered as they are throughout therapy, meaning that as they get close they get afraid. As they get close they get even more needy of the relationship and the dependency really kicks in, maybe even falling in love, which is all par for the course and and a and just a beautiful thing that happens and a, a competent therapist knows how to contain that. And it doesn't feel good to be in love with your therapist necessarily. It doesn't feel good to depend on a therapist who can't be there all the time. But that's just what happens. The analogy I always give is you're dying of thirst in the desert and you see an oasis. Uh, There's some water and and you've been dying of thirst for literally 35 years, and you're like, oh my god, there's finally some water over there, and you become extremely happy, <laughs> you know? You're not just kind of like, oh, that's that's a nice thing for my life. It's all you can focus on. You, Someone could come by and say, hey, I have a nice necklace that you could buy, and you're like, get out of my way. That water, that beautiful wonderful water is over there i need to get i don't care if it's a little murky i don't care if it's got you know some stuff in it i need water and i've been dying for it i've i've never had water my entire life and and when you get to that water then all you want to do is stay there and all you see outside of that oasis is a desert and Uh, you're going to fight for it. And when that water suddenly reveals to you that maybe it's not really there or it's not, you know, when your therapist, whom you love and depend on with all of your heart, because, of course, because you've never been given a secure attachment your entire life, when your therapist indicates that maybe they can't be trusted, that maybe they're not safe, that maybe they don't think all good thoughts about you. And there's some concern there of uh, that, that your therapist might actually hate you. You know, there's, there's always those moments you're like, wait, does my therapist like me or not? And if you have been betrayed over and over and over again in your life, then that's going to really really sting and you're going to think oh it's happening again I depended on a person and I opened myself up stupid me and this person is hurting me and it's so painful and they're making me feel so (laughs) terrible I'm going to blow out of therapy (laughs) and I'm going to either in person let this therapist have it for what they did to me or I'm going to write them a long email and say, I can't believe you did this to me. And I'm going to blow out. You know, that, that's, that's the term. It, the, the technical term is there's a relationship rupture and then there's a termination initiated by the client. So that's the technical term. That's what you would say in your notes. Um, and that happens throughout treatment with, with people with borderline or any personality disorder for that matter. There are going to be relationship ruptures, and it's all about how you as a client and a therapist manage that for the betterment of the longevity of, and the stability and the safety and security of the relationship. Um, but sometimes either the client doesn't handle it well or the therapist doesn't handle it well or both, and either the relationship rupture is too great or it wasn't addressed fast enough and the client blows out of therapy that's the that's the term that we use for that uh, i i've worked a, a, with all of my trainees that i work with for you know more than a few months and all my supervisees there's always a moment where they have this moment with a client who has relational traumas and all my trainees are in utter dismay and despair and they don't know what to do and they can they think of themselves they completely screwed up they're inadequate they they should have known better it feels really bad and i think that's why for everyone obviously it feels worse for the client but it feels pretty bad to the therapist too and so that's where we get these phrases blown out of therapy because <laughs> it it really feels like a bomb just blew up it in your personal life as a therapist you might be literally shaking with fight or flight for, I don't know, a day or two, maybe longer. It's very hard to deal with. It it feels terrible. And so um, that's what I mean by that. Now, anonymous patron from London, you say that you've one time you did fire a therapist, and uh, who knows, uh, we, we would have to obviously hear the whole story to know how we would characterize that and you're saying well maybe that therapist would phrase it as blowing out of therapy who knows Uh, it's also possible the therapist thought well you know what I deserve to be fired you know there's a lot of different ways that one can conceptualize it Uh, but you also talk about how um, usually therapists are the ones who abandon you and that happens too absolutely there are a lot of therapists out there who one are badly trained or two just I don't know haven't dedicated themselves to the meaning of the profession which is to help people and when push comes to shove and they run into those relational traumas and those countertransferences and those transferences they don't know what to do or they don't want to deal with it and then they will terminate with the client which is a huge problem it there's nothing wrong with screening people out before you meet them <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't work with this, and thus I need to make sure I screen those people within at least the first couple sessions. Uh, you you can't screen someone after six months. That's not screening. That's irresponsibility. So I'm, I don't know if that happened to you, anonymous patron from Lennon, but, um but that's what I'll say about that. Going on with the email here. What do you think about renaming borderline personality disorder to emotionally unstable personality disorder? I work at a clinic, and they keep using this term, and I don't like it. It really limits this and stigmatizes the experience. For example, I read an official website that says, quote, these people have unstable emotions which which cause them to have relationship issues and an unstable sense of self, end of quote, et cetera, which is so false. The new term will only perpetuate these ideas, in my opinion. What do you think would be a fitting term other than borderline? And what do you th- and Bob? What do you think about emotionally unstable personality disorder?
1: I agree with what the person wrote in. Uh, it it um, it's a term that uh, Marshall and calls it apparent competence. She says apparent competence is when the therapist misattunes misunderstands and and underestimates the level let's see i'm gonna make sure i'm saying this right underestimates the experience and feeling of the client and so expects more than is um available in other words from her point of view parent competence is a um, therapist failing not a client failing and so when i hear the term emotionally unstable i think that is a professional organizational failing because People aren't unstable, and the implication is that it's like saying somebody who has appendicitis has um, medical instability, and so if they, (laughs) you know, like, so if I operate and they die, it must be because, you know. Or even worse, like uh, someone with
0: appendicitis has, like, complaining disorder. Yeah, right. You know, like, oh, this patient keeps complaining all the time, and, uh, you know, so let's call it complaining. No, that's... (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, it's a fundamental misunderstanding and a failure in empathy, right? So emotionally unstable, I think, is a total failure in empathy and understanding. And I don't mean woo-woo, nice-nice empathy. I mean in genuine, just accurate understanding and portrayal of what actually happens for people. Like, if people are relationally traumatized, they are going to look different than folks who have not um, had that kind of suffering. So folks who haven't had that kind of suffering... It's not going to be so easy for them to get in the shoes and see the world properly through the uh lens of the other, and so yeah, they come up with crap, you know, like emotionally unstable, and even the word borderline personality disorder that phrase has so much um prejudice attached to it right. it's like it's like in the mental health community at large, there is a prejudice against folks with that. With that, I remember the first time I got a client, this is before I went to graduate school, uh, I got a client, and it was the person was misdiagnosed. They actually had a psychotic disorder, not a personality disorder. But I was told, oh, this client has borderline personality disorder, and I had been around enough to know that, uh-oh, 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 what am I in for? She was a delight. I really liked knowing her and working with her. I knew her for two years before I, I got laid off from that job, but... um She was, I really enjoyed her. I really enjoyed knowing her and she was, so um, I think borderline's not a great term. I think it's outdated. I think emotionally unstable is silly. That's just silly. Um, I heard Marsha Linehan say once that she thought perhaps, I think I'm remembering this right, emotion dysregulation disorder would be a more um, fitting. And even there's something about that, that, yeah, can, that's the same. Land a little bit like blamey here. You yeah, know? that's
0: the same. Emotionally unstable, emotional dysregulation. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I get what she's getting at, which is yeah. DBT, That's primary focus is emotional regulation. Right. Mindfulness, awareness, yeah. right. narratives about your emotions. Right. Like differentiating between emotions and, you know, reality, so to speak. And uh, so I get it, but uh, everyone has trouble with emotional regulation. (laughs) Uh, The the person that we label as borderline, the the problems, and we keep saying relationally traumatized, because to me, that is the best phrase. Mm -hmm. Or abandonment trauma disorder would be Mm -hmm. another thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something along those lines, because that would, to me, describe what it is. You could also say, I guess, severe complex PTSD or just complex PTSD. Uh, Research has found that we actually have a difference between complex. A lot of people online will equate complex PTSD with borderline, and it depends on the definition. But generally speaking, uh, when, when someone qualifies for the full disorder of borderline, they have additional, they have all the symptoms of complex PTSD plus other symptoms that are used to label it you know people uh, need to understand that these are just words we add to symptoms it'd be like if bob and i wanted to create a a label for what is a good podcast (laughs) and we're like okay we have good podcast disorder and bob bob and bad podcast disorder and good podcast disorders characterized by never stuttering, like I just did. There, you know, it's just a matter of how you define, and 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 it's some might agree with it, some might not. And there's gonna be there's always gonna be problems. But yeah, yeah, borderline uh, as a term is. I, I don't mind it as a term. Uh, it's a little weird because it it goes back to the '40s, I believe, when psychoanalysts were observing that some people seemed to be psychotic meaning that they're they were they didn't have a, a they were broken from reality in the same way that a, someone suffering from schizophrenia might hear voices or think you're out to get them they'll be paranoid they're like oh you're working against you work for the fbi and you're out to get me or you're reading my mind you know these are common paranoid thoughts that Someone suffering from schizophrenia or any psychosis might uh, exhibit, and they had these other people that seemed similar to that, but but borderline to psychosis, meaning that they ha- were very sure about certain things that were not sh- uh, demonstrated, and they found that these people were very sure that their therapist and others were abandoning them and were having bad thoughts about them. And at first, since they were so schizophrenia-oriented, they're like, oh, let's lump these people in with schizophrenia. But over time, they're like, oh, they're really different because they don't hear voices, and they all have these relational traumas, and they have these uh, relationships that are very intense. It seems more relationally oriented and not just generally cognitive uh, impairment oriented. And so they, so they said, yeah, let's just call it borderline because it, it seemed borderline to psychosis and then that's stuck. And it, to me, I, I, I kind of like it. It emphasizes a part of the experience that is very, you know, is a small percentage of the experience, but, but it's, I don't know. It, for most people, when they hear the word borderline, it doesn't evoke any negativity if they've never heard of the word before. You know, it just, just sounds kind of like a weird word that, like schizophrenia, no one knows the the root meaning of schizophrenia. It's just, it's just a word to people. Uh, the problem is, is that over the past, I'm going to say 40 years, maybe longer, clinicians have had counter-transference, which we all understand is something. And then to deal with the counter-transference, they just blame the victim. They blame the clients. And and over time, various different labels become associated with bad things, and Borderline is one of the top on that list. And so now – and then the Internet has taken that and decided to also uh, blast people with Borderline – On the internet, and so, uh, so that's the problem. Similar to when the word "retarded" first was developed in our field, it didn't have any negative association. It was, in fact, it was, it was, in response to previous labels like "imbecile" and "moron," that also did not have negative connotations in the beginning. But society took it over and said started labeling people that oh you're an imbecile or oh you're retarded and then eventually the community's like well now we got to change it again because people are walking around clinicians are walking around diagnosing people with retardation and that has all this other meaning to it in our society perhaps you know 99 percent of the word has now been taken over by society and it's and has not been um, and is no longer ours anymore. And same, perhaps with borderline. Yeah, w- w- there's other words like narcissism is another thing that's been taken mm-hmm. over by by society. And so we, you know, we have to change it. Um, but yeah, for sure, relationally traumatized disorder uh, or condition. I don't even like the word disorder, pr- frankly. Um, Relationally tra- just relationally traumatized This person has experienced relational trauma And they have effects of that in their adult life Call it a syndrome call it a condition Call it a reaction call it a style Call it a disorder I guess um, Those so that's my long talk about that Right on um, Let's take a break Bob when we get back Let's answer some more emails what do you
1: say Yes
0: Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist but i know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with like i said one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com/kirk and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide which is amazing i've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours you can message with your counselor anytime plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and i've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy so go to betterhelp.com/kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. Anonymous listener wrote in and said, I have had two therapists in my life and both terminated with me after six months because my depression seemed, quote-unquote, too biological, in their words. It's a really interesting feeling of rejection when a therapist tells you that they can't or won't help you anymore. Is this common? Now I'm apprehensive to get another therapist and spend six months crying in front of
1: them and then get rejected again. Bob, what do you think? Oh, uh, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Somebody's not treatable because they're... How would you even assess if somebody's depression is biologic? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, well, well go, right, ahead. Go, ahead.
0: Go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead.
1: All right. Um, <laughs> the, I, I don't know. The first thought I had was... Um, you know, I've been on an antidepressant for probably seven, eight years. I wonder if an antidepressant would be helpful for this person to, you know, improve their mood. It might. It might not. That's a trial and error thing. You might have to try a bunch of them, and uh, could be take a while. Um, I think I tried three before I hit the one that I have with Welthogen, your with way.
0: your prescriber, of course.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I wouldn't know how else to do it. Um. um so. So. You know, if. I was just thinking, okay, if the person has depression and, uh, you know, medication might help in the treatment so that they don't feel so bad. That's a possibility. But I've seen depressed people because every therapist sees depressed people for years. And I um, don't know how I would even go about assessing this is biologic over something else. I don't generally think that way. So, uh, so I do think that way. I mean,
0: not, oh, do not in a firm scientific manner, because uh-huh. of course, every part of our mind is biological. So, well, right. Uh, but I actually just got done talking with my supervisees yesterday about differentiating between different types of depression in terms of how to approach them clinically. And let me know if you think that this is how you might experience the world. Um, One type of depression is what some people call situational, meaning that they're going through a divorce, or someone just died, or they're in a pandemic, and they can't leave the house, and they lost their job. And there's reasons to be sad. Maybe even they grew up with a really difficult childhood, and it's very sad to them. And maybe their depression has been going on for a very long time, but... It's situational in that they have reasons to have a tremendous amount of sadness and demoralization. So that's one type, and I think all of us can identify and agree that that happens. The second type is what I call schema type or personality type, which is that – and they used to have a personality disorder that, if I'm remembering right, was called negativistic personality disorder disorder. It was along these lines. And it is still a personality trait called negativism. It's this idea that based on the way you were raised or something, you have this lens on the world that it just produces depression in you because you're you're so cynical, you're so negative, you're so pessimistic, you're so down on life. Now, which is it, chicken or the egg? Because if you're depressed, then you're going to see the you know, if, if you're – life is going down the tubes, and then your body becomes depressed, you're going to start seeing the world in a very pessimistic way. But some people seem, regardless of how well their life is going, that you just sort of notice in the way that they uh, choose to see the world, their knee-jerk reaction is to see the world in this very negative way. And probably early in life, they were modeled that, or it was a foregone conclusion that made sense when they were four years old. It's just like, well, everything is negative in my life when I'm four. And so I might as well just assume everything's negative. And then you're 45 years old and your life is actually going okay, but you still apply that negative assumption because it was correct when you were young and it, and when you're young, we tend to have these heuristics because it saves us from getting our hopes up. Right. It's like, well, I might as well assume everything's negative because if I get my hopes up, my hopes will be dashed. And then you just sort of give up on on ever seeing things positively and it becomes this automatic way of seeing the world that's completely outside of your awareness and you're 45 years old and you're, quote-unquote, depressed. You're probably not going to be experiencing major depression with that. It's just an ongoing low-grade mood problem. And sometimes people are called dysthymic or persistent, uh, you know, Depressed, persistent depressive disorders, That's that's what it called in five. I forget. And some people even think that dysthymia is a personality disorder, in that it's something that you always had since you were very young, and it very much is a part of your personality. That, and regardless of medications and psychotherapy and CBT, it it's going to be really hard to change that because it has to do with your core belief, your schemas. So. These first two are, what do you think about these two before I get to the third one? Makes sense. Okay. The third type is what I will call biological in that this group is also depressed independent of their circumstance. And it, and that's always hard to tease out, right? Because how do you know? But uh, usually if someone is depressed for, say, 15 years, you can usually look back and say, like, well, well did it correspond with how your life was going? And what a lot of these people will say is, no, it just seems to come and go. And and sometimes it's seasonal, sometimes it's not. And they, they can feel it coming on. And these people are prone to deep depressions as opposed to the other two. The other two can have temporary deep depressions. But this third category, they tend to, from an early age, maybe teenage, maybe early 20s, they just have these months where their mood is so low and they absolutely qualify for major depressive disorder and no amount of therapy can help them. No amount of positive thinking, no matter how well their life is going, these people tend to exhibit the kind of the classic signs of depression where they can't even get off the couch to change the channel. You know, the the remote control will be on the other side of the room and they know they can physically get up and go get it, but they, they, their brain is so depressed that they can't get the motivation to walk across the room and get the remote control. They have a hard time showering. They have a hard time going to work. They have a hard time getting out of bed. They have a hard time. They don't enjoy anything like nothing is fun with the other two, particularly the first uh, group of depressed folks. Um, they can experience brief moments of joy and happiness and, and laughter with people in this third category of depression, they, in my clinical experience, nothing will jog them out because it's a what I would call a biological condition. There's something different about the brain in the same way that someone with bipolar. We wouldn't say that bipolar is circumstantial. <laughs> you know, bipolar is a, it's a physiological difference. And with depression, it makes sense that there would be people that would be unipolar mood disorder, right? That's what we call it. And and so uh, for these folks, the answer is usually seeking medication and trying to figure out what to do there. Obviously, a little bit of uh, uh, psychotherapy can help in terms of CBT for sure. But But the opposite is not true. CBT is not going to help these folks with their depression. So uh, does that make sense to you, Bob? It does, but it doesn't strike me as
1: a reason to terminate.
0: Right. No, I'm just explaining my different types. No, no. And why why I would use the term biological. And whenever I talk about this, I'm, I'm always like, look, all three of them are biological. <laughs> but I'm just using the term biological to kind of emphasize yep. that it's uh, independent of your environment for the most part. And there's no way of knowing if someone's depressed, which one they are. It's just a matter of it's an art form in terms of an assessment. And the reason why we want to differentiate between those three is we it helps us to know what to target. Right. Right so, if it 's circumstantial, then it 's a matter of expressing your feelings and thinking about how you can change your life and it is about uh, the meaning of your life and getting in touch with that and being heard and being understood and having good attachments. You know that first type where it 's circumstantial, I can see people within after a first session they 'll be better in terms of depression you know they 'll come to me depressed for six months. Because their life is bad, or they're grieving something, or you know they just have never been validated or heard. And then I listen to them for one hour, and their depression is gone, and it never comes back. No, not always, but but that's how uh, the depression is so related to how their life is going. The people in the middle with schemas, then we want to target the schemas. We want to target how your core beliefs began, and we want to provide corrective experience such that you have shown to you that life is positive or at least it's not negative and you want to work interpersonally in the relationship for the third group of people none of those things are probably going to work and you're going to want to target biological solutions medications sleep uh, health diet exercise things that get your physiology changing Um, now I will say that uh, the other thing that I'll say is that, uh, working with depression with especially that third type, but a little bit of the second type can be very difficult. There's a ton of counter transference that happens. I mean, I don't know about you, Bob, but it's been true for me early in my career, you know, in, in, at the beginning of my career, I'm like, well, yeah, depression, I, of course bring it on. You know, that's one of those, that's one of those common things that people suffer from. Let me add it. Let me help and after i had a number of clients who were i would call that third category of depression and i had tremendous counter uh, transference of feeling inadequate of just like complete uselessness and powerlessness because the person's depression would just get you know worse and worse suicidality every session would be me trying to cheer them on and keep them alive literally i mean there i would have sessions where a client is staring at their feet the entire session, crying, uh, talking about how they don't know if they're going to live, and I and I'm just sitting there trying to help them believe that they have a reason to live, <clears throat> and to follow the, the the safety plan, and and your parents love you, and you know it's, and they're just sitting there going like, I I hear your words, but I, it does I don't believe it. I I thanks for saying it, but. It's not working, you know, and that's, um, demoralizing it's, it's powerlessness it, it, you end up kind of feeling depressed yourself as a therapist because you're absorbing that. And so to work with depression of that sort you need to know what you're doing and you need to be prepared. It's similar to working with eating disorders. Like in the beginning of my career, I was like, oh, let me add it. And I actually specialized in it for a while and learned, oh my goodness, like this is hard work. Working with people with eating disorders is very difficult. And unless you're up for it and the stress and the counter-transference, like we were saying earlier, you need to screen those people out. And so... And, and, and we need to have a cadre of, of specialists. So, so anonymous listener, um, you know, is it, is it grounds for you to be terminated (laughs) by your therapist? No, Um, it is grounds potentially to be screened out and recommended that you seek a specialist. You know, there's nothing wrong with a therapist saying like, yeah, I don't work with severe depression for whatever reason. And I know this other person that actually specializes in that. And I I want you to work with that. And so, by the way, if you are a therapist and you do decide you don't want to work with a particular group of people, you need to find someone that does and that you can direct them to. You can't just say, I don't work with eating disorders or I don't work with depression or I don't work with borderline without having someone right away that you can refer them to. So um, and that's kind of complicated, too. But the point is, is that it doesn't surprise me. That some therapists would run into a wall with someone who was ongoingly depressed, and the therapist is experiencing that tremendous countertransference of inadequacy, and they think, uh, "I don't think anything is working. I, 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 I don't like the way this feels, and I think I'm inadequate. I think I'm the wrong person for this for this client, and I think I'm gonna." I think I am going to recommend they seek therapy. You know, therapy somewhere else. You know, like we've been saying, you got to screen them out before the first session. <laughs> and the problem is, is there is a lot of novice therapists out there who literally have advertised on their profile, "I specialize in depression." <laughs> when they actually uh, will, sp- they might have had some success with the with the first type where someone's depressed about how their life is going. But they actually don't have experience with the third type of depression. And uh, when they run into it, they're like, oh, I don't like this. (laughs) Anyway, am I making sense to you, Bob?
1: Yes, you are.
0: I mean, have you ever run into that where you're having that countertransference with someone who just has unrelenting depression over time and it doesn't seem like there's anything you can do to help?
1: Yes, I have. Yeah, What does that feel like? Um, hopeless feels like stuck in a trough. Um, mm, uh, feels anxious to me and shameful cause like, Oh, nothing I'm doing is making a difference here. I'm not helping. Um, and it can have the effect of turning me off and like, you know, fun, not phoning it in. And that's too big, but, um, not being fully present and not giving my best effort. Like, if you don't think it's going to help, then it's harder to give your best effort. I don't love that I'm saying this, but this is true. Um, and um, it can lead to um, a vulnerability and dishonesty, mostly around being plain about that. Like, I don't think this is helping you. Um, I. I want to talk about whether or not you think this is helping you. And if it is how, and if it isn't, or if it isn't enough, what now, which is different from I'm out of here. It's more like, Hey, this matters. Right. And you know, where are we at? How's treatment going? Like, like a step back and reassess where are we and what's happening?
0: Yeah. I think what that requires is one clinical wisdom and also clinical confidence Mm -hmm. And the ability to say, I don't feel adequate. I feel like things are not going well. And the Mm -hmm. person is even more depressed now than they were before. Mm -hmm. But I know I'm a good therapist. And uh, let's see if maybe, let's have a conversation about maybe trying other things. I'll just Mm -hmm. observe that. I'll just be like, you know, I'm observing. You're telling me that your depression is the same or even worse than when we first met. And and, uh, so... I just want to talk about that. Are there other things maybe that we should be trying? Um, what do you you know? Let, let's call that out instead of running from your own possible inadequacy, right? Which mm-hmm. is what termination would do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the the, th- the final thing I'll say is that there's a lot of depressed people out there. It's a very common condition, and it is just the worst. Um, I, you know, Bob and I have both been close with people, uh, clients and personally who suffer from this and it's just, it's such a tragedy really uh, and whether it's circumstantial or quote unquote biological or schema based or whatever it, it really is unrelenting and if you've never been depressed uh, and you have a hard time relating Just imagine waking up in the morning, your eyes open up, and the first, I don't know, number of thoughts you have are, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I'm not good enough, and what was that stupid thing I said the other day, and I'm not going to be able to get through this. There's no point. Why am I here? There's just no point (laughs) people are going to judge me and I'm going to and they're going to look at me like I'm lazy and I'm going to be in a bad mood and I'm going to disappoint my spouse because I'm not going to be available and I'm going to be short with people and I'm going to disappoint everyone around me and I just want to crawl into a hole and disappear literally I just don't I if there was a switch, I could turn off and just be like, I'm just gone. The world would be a better place without me. And that is a common scenario. And, and it doesn't stop throughout the day. It's, it just keeps going, you know. And some people, they're so depressed, they just stare at the ceiling all day. They, it's, they don't even, you know, you think, oh, depressed. Oh, okay, well, you just watch Netflix. No. When you're, when you're depressed, you don't even want to watch TV because there's no, there's. you don't enjoy anything. It's not being lazy. It's not being uh, relaxed or uh, leisurely. It is literally, I don't want to do anything. Nothing is appealing to me. I guess I might as well stare at netflix but i'm not enjoying it it doesn't feel good uh, the show is supposed to be entertaining but it's not nothing is entertaining right now and if you're one of those people and you're not in treatment get treatment there is treatment out there and i and i guess that's the final final thing i should say is that research shows that with proper treatment there is a uh, reduction in system in symptoms for sure Medication, psychotherapy, life circumstances, exercise, diet, care, attachment, proper grief, meaning of life, all these things have been proven science-based to work in the same way that when you have a broken arm, science has proven that when the physician resets the bone and puts a cast on, research shows that things work out usually. In the same way, there's a whole field of depression science and treatment that works. You just have to find someone that knows what they're doing. And I apologize on behalf of my field where you have a bunch of hacks saying that, they're de- that they specialize in depression when they really do not. Anonymous Upper Tier Patron writes in and says, Let's say you are the therapist in couples therapy. And you suspect a lot of positive transference feelings of affection coming from the wife. So you got that, Bob? So you're, mm-hmm. the, you're the couple's therapist, heterosexual mm-hmm. couple, mm-hmm. and the wife, you suspect, has a lot of positive transference feelings of affection. I don't know exactly what that means, like, just a, a wanting to sort of be a friend or something. What would be your clinical interpretation of this kind of transference coming up in cup in a couple session. It was reassuring to hear in this recent episode on positive transference that if these feelings are being evoked in the therapeutic space, then it could be seen as evidence that the space is safe and that healing is happening. Can this kind of healing relationship occur with your couples therapist? Bob, what do you think?
1: Um, wow. A bunch of things, I guess. Um, to me, what I think is, oh, that's an expression of longing. Like the kind of experience I'm having with my therapist is the kind of experience I want to have with my spouse. And so um this actually happened. And I'm thinking about this really lovely couple, just both of them, just really lovely. And uh, one of them had a very strong, positive transference towards me. Um and, let's see, the th- what one of the things that made it hard for me is I was thinking that the partner would be um, jealous or ashamed. And I actually think that he was ashamed. I think that seeing her, seeing the way she interacted with me and the uh, valence towards me, the affect towards me, the um, warmth towards me made him want for that and also feel like, well, why can't I have that? And so therapy was around um, him learning how to be responsive to her because, you know, there's nothing that's great about me. There really isn't. (laughs) Um, So, and I'm not doing anything that's, you know, um, miraculous. I am responsive to her. So, yeah, that's good. And he can learn to be responsive to her. And as he learned to do that, her her feelings towards me became less important. And her feelings towards him grew the way you'd expect because they actually really love each other. Yeah, They want to be married. They've had a long marriage, very successful in lots and lots of ways. And sort of for this couple, older couple, so, you know, raise the kids and... Um, Sort of in the last third of life and retirement, they're fortunate enough to be retired and um, you know golden years. Like, what do we do to make life interesting? And so, um, let's see. What was my point? What was my point? Well,
0: I don't know, but you're telling a story about how the woman had affection transference to you, yes. and he wasn't enthusiastic about it. And then, as you worked on how he could be safe like you are safe she mm-hmm. naturally shifted her feelings of affection from you to him yes and that's how you maybe even saw it in the beginning was like okay yeah i noticed that she is almost preferring me over her husband and yeah. how do i help the two of them in their relationship such that she prefers her husband over me and then and you you did that and the three of you achieved that so
1: Um, there was a lovely moment in all of that where they were out somewhere and um, they were just walking around somewhere and she took his hand and he turned and he looked at her and she really was enjoying his gaze. And then they were someplace that, you know, had stuff around him that was really stimulating and he found himself looking away towards, you know, something else. And um, it hurt. And she came into therapy really vulnerable, and really sincere. I mean, both of them, just so super lovely. And ended up saying to him, can I please have your gaze? I just want your gaze. And at first he's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. I fucked up, but uh-oh, uh-oh. And I'm like, well, yeah, but if, if she actually wanted it right now, if she actually did want it right now, would you want to give it? And he's like, oh, yeah, for sure. And she said, can I have your gaze? And he turned and he just stared at her for, I'll never forget it, it was 35 seconds long, because I, I won't tell you why I knew that, but I do, I knew that it was 35 seconds long. And then when it was, after that moment passed, he just started reminiscing about how when they were young together and they used to go walking on the beach and they'd hold hands and just talk about shit. This is before they had kids, while they were still a young couple. It was like, it brought him back to what, he fell in love with about her and what they really shared together, you know, before um, life and conflict disrupted their experience of one another. Anyways, um, they didn't, they weren't in therapy much longer after that. They graduated and they're fine. Yeah. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And uh, I hadn't thought about that angle. That's great. Um, Anonymous upper upper tier patron, you ask you know, can this kind of healing relationship occur in a couple's therapist? Yeah. I mean, I I think what you're getting at is, you know, we often talk about how if an individual therapy, if a client has this kind of positive transference, it's a good sign. It means that Mm -hmm. the relationship is intense enough such that that dependence, that healthy dependence is coming out. And Mm -hmm. as that happens, it allows for a corrective experience. You can't have a right. corrective experience that will heal you relation from your relational traumas if the client therapist relationship is very surface, right? It yes. needs it needs to be deep and thus have transferences of various sorts, whether it's right. mostly positive or mostly negative or whatever. But um, that that's just what's going to happen. And so we will frame that transference as a good thing. And mm-hmm. what you're asking is, you know, can that happen in couples therapy? And yes, it can. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's always happening, <laughs> uh, regardless mm-hmm. of what type of therapy it is. So in couples, for it's not like countertransference, transference doesn't exist. It just, it, it does absolutely. And so uh, I, there's even entire books on this. I have a book on my shelf that's countertransference in couples therapy which of course is a discussion of transference as well. The point is is that for both people they will transfer onto us as couples therapists their hopes and dreams and their anger and fears and resentments about their parents and their or whoever was their caregiver. And I as a therapist will try to optimally provide corrective experiences engineered between the couple because then they can do this all all week long. But in lieu of that or in addition to that, I will also provide corrective experiences for both of them. And transference, counter-transference is going to happen. Like I said, ideally, I'm going to point them at each other, but in, in meaning that both of them have relational traumas and one of them feels alone and unheard. Mm-hmm. And in individual therapy, well, I'm the only one there, so I'm going to be the one to validate. But if I can, in couples therapy, I'm going to engineer the the spouse to be that person that mm-hmm. cares and is empathetic and listens mm-hmm. and does the gaze. And if that can happen, then that's optimal because, like I said, that will perpetuate way you know more often than the one hour a week that I have with them. Mm-hmm. And that's honestly, while I'm on the topic, the beauty of couple and family therapy, which is that In individual therapy, it's once a week at best. And with couple and family therapy, if you change relationships, it's therapy all week long, baby. All right, uh, final email here. Patron Mm -hmm. Liz from New York writes, is it possible to outgrow your therapist? I've been seeing my most recent therapist for four years, and I feel like I haven't gotten any better after four years. I am simply venting in these sessions about getting Uh, Sorry, I am simply venting in these sessions without getting the tools to help me. I am seeing a social worker, but should I be seeing a Ph.D. psychologist? I suffer from crippling self-esteem, family dysfunction, anxiety, eating disorders, obesity, underachievement, and I think undiagnosed ADD. Maybe a segment on this, maybe a segment on when it's time to change therapists would be good. Bob, what do you think?
1: You're not there yet, at least based on what you wrote in. What I hear is shame and anger. Maybe you're really pissed off because the therapist isn't helping you, but perhaps it's very hard to talk about that with the therapist and sort of put all the cards on the table. Maybe you're afraid, well, on the one hand, you're frustrated and disappointed that you're going to hurt that person's feelings, and then, um, you know, where does that leave you? And it sounds like that dynamic, if I'm getting it right, that dynamic is um, holding you up. Right. So you can't come to therapy and be your most true, authentic self. You guys have probably heard me say um, my therapist almost every week says to me, Bob, do you want to be here today? Right. Lots of the time the answer is no, I don't. And that's what we end up talking about. What is the experience of this today? The other day I had a session with him, I swear I sat in silence for 98 percent of it and was talking to him about the fact that I was sitting in silence and I didn't know what the hell to say. I didn't know what to talk about, but that he did not want to fill the space with words to which he said, good. It's good that you're noticing that you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say, but you're not just puking up a bunch of words to get through this hour. And it was really uncomfortable, but we both of us sat in it. I think it was uncomfortable for him, too. I don't think he told me it was, but not that it's uncomfortable and I want to get the fuck away from you, Bob. It's it's uncomfortable. And here we are together in it. And that's where I want to be. Yeah, and, and and wow, I mean, just to
0: put a fine point on it so maybe sure. other people can generalize it to them is right that for you, Bob, you've lived a life, particularly as a child, being ignored and denied and made to feel like you can't be you and made to feel like your feelings don't matter. And that feeling of, well, okay, I'm going to get close to someone, I want to matter, you know, I want them to hear me. I want them to see me. I want them to allow me to be me. I want to be me. Can I be me? I can't be me because me is bad. I need to be what they want me to be. And when you go to therapy, the corrective experience to give you an experience that teaches you that you can be you will, you know, in the, in that moment mean that you're allowed to sit there in silence and not know what to say. And not fill it with a bunch of words to make it easier for the therapist. And although it's not the best session a therapist can go through, uh, it's the best thing that they know they can do. And they would be mortified if they participate or colluded with some, you know, defense that you have for his benefit, you know, <laughs> instead of your benefit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what I hear
1: when I hear mm-hmm. you talk about that. Eight minutes before the session ended, he said to me, we have about eight minutes left. What do you want to do? And I sat there in silence and he said, maybe you want us to stay together for the next eight minutes. I wanted to crawl under the table, but of course that's what I wanted. Um, as horrible as it felt, I wouldn't wanted to stay in connection with him through the rest of our time um, because I really did want that. I just didn't know how to entertain him and thought that I should. Anyways, bringing it back to the, what the person wrote in about, I, I say this all the time, get the cards on the table. I know it's scary. Bring up your dissatisfaction. Bring up your fear that maybe you're not getting anywhere. It might be that you guys discover that, yeah, you've gone as far as you can go together or you know what they can do and what you need don't match or don't match well enough or don't match anymore. They used to, but they don't or something. But it seems to me that coming in with the secret in your heart is, um, you know, you're not able to get what it's holding you up.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful, Bob. And, you know, it brings a tear to my eye hearing, I'm trying to figure out what the tear is. I guess it's Hmm. a joy for you, I think so that because you were able to experience that and, pain thanks. for you uh, for that moment, it sounds mm-hmm. painful mm-hmm. to be that vulnerable and that you <laughs> um, but also just like the ongoing pain that you go through um, which is unfair <laughs> thanks yeah
1: hmm.
0: um, and maybe, if maybe. you ever want to be real here And I know you are sometimes, maybe now included, halfway real, maybe. Um, Not that you're fake, but, um, you know, uh, I hope you know what I'm saying. Um, I do. And,
1: you know, I would love that. And I know the Mm. listeners would too. Thanks. That's scary to me. I think that's the realest thing I can say is that feels really scary. Yeah, me too. Uh, For you and
0: if I were to do that, it's a scary mm-hmm. place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so much easier to act like everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so to wrap up here, patron Liz, uh, yeah, some questions specific social mm-hmm. worker versus PhD psychologist. On average, there's no difference in outcomes. I know it's tempting to think that like, well, they have more education, PhD psychologists, and it sounds better than a social worker to some. Um, no, there's no, you know, there are a number of professions. You have social work, psychology, psychiatry, uh, psychiatric nurses, uh, marriage and family therapists, counselors. Um, am I missing someone <laughs> in there somewhere? I feel like I am. Anyway, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. No no difference on average in terms of outcomes. There might be some issues that there might be slight differences, but there's it's, it's more accurate to say that among psychologists and among social workers and among counselors, there's a wide variety of competence and specialization. You can have a social worker that is an expert on what you're talking about. And you can have a psychologist that is has no idea what your problem is. So that's it's just a matter of finding the right professional. It has almost nothing to do, in my experience, and according to the data, based on the profession. I've had counselors as therapists. I've had social workers as therapists. I've had marriage family therapists. As, I've had psychologists. And uh, if, if I didn't know what their degree was, I wouldn't know. <laughs> um, because once you enter the field of psychotherapy, The options available to you in terms of the way you practice is – it's all the same. It's not like if you're a psychologist, you get special different theories that other people don't get. So that's what I'll say about that. Um, The other thing is, you know, you talk about, you know, I'm I'm just simply venting and I'm not getting the tools. Well, there's a whole lot I can say about that. Um, And as Bob says, you know, talk with your therapist because it sounds like you're not – have the alliance depends on you having the same goal and the same task. Um, and also understanding your prognosis and predicted outcomes. And so if, if you're just like, my therapist seems to be encouraging venting, but I want tools, bring that up and say, just say that. And your therapist should be able to say, oh, okay, well, the reason why I'm gearing more towards the venting side is because of this prognosis and this predicted outcome. But if you don't want to do that, then we can do what you want to do And it'll have this predicted outcome, and we're going to lose the opportunities over here. But that's up to you. A therapist should be able to say that. A lot of therapists don't know how to say that, and they have mostly, if not entirely, because they've never been trained. There's no class in graduate school that teaches you how to do that. I spend a lot of time with my supervisees uh, teaching them how to respond to those questions. So. There's a lot of therapists out there that are just terrified when their client asks, "What are we doing and why?" You know, if you ask a physician that, they know how to answer that question because they're trained. Uh therapists aren't trained. You, there's no, like I said, there there's some classes on treatment planning and stuff, but and unless you're a very rigid cognitive therapist, uh anything outside of that realm, it's going to be a little more squishy. It's possible, believe me, but anyway, Uh, So there's that. The last thing you ask is, you know, when is the time to switch? And here are some steps to find out. We, We get this question a lot. But number one, do you see positive results, patron Liz? You know, and or do you see the likelihood of positive results in the future? This is hard to determine sometimes, but this is a main question you want to ask yourself. I've been to therapy for four years. Has anything positive happened? Now, maybe the positive thing is that no negative things happened. You know, sometimes the best we can expect is well, you didn't decline. So that's positive, right? Um, in the same way that if you were diagnosed with cancer, and you still had cancer, but you were still alive after 10 years, or you have HIV, and you still have HIV in 10 years, but you're still alive, then that's a success, right? So for some of us, that's 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 a good thing. Now, it's up to you to decide whether or not that's a good thing. Two, Talk with your clinician about the question, obviously. Uh, three, ask other clients about their success stories, you know, people who had similar issues to you. Because it's possible that the kind of thing that you're working on tends to take a long time in therapy, maybe maybe 10 more years. Or if other people are like, yeah, it only took me this long, and, and this is what we did in therapy that helped, and sometimes that can help too. It's just a way of gathering information about your treatment. And if those things don't work and you you find you're still, like, wondering what's going on, number four is potentially consult with another clinician. Essentially, it's getting a second opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of clients out there are terrified of, like, well, I don't want to insult my therapist. My goodness, if your therapist can't handle a client consulting with another clinician, man, they need need therapy themselves to work on their self-esteem. Um, if I had a client that said, "You know what? I feel like things are stagnating. I want to consult with another clinician just to get a second opinion." Now, I'm not going to say that I'm 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 going to be celebrating, you know, because it's it's not a blue ribbon of approval in that situation. But uh, very quickly, I'd kick in with like, "Oh yeah, of course, client first. Uh, yes, if they find another clinician that seems to resonate with them better." then by all means, it's uh, that's not going to be a happy day for me because I'm going to feel a little inadequate. But my I'm client-centered, and if it works for the client, then let's do it for sure. So if you, you know, consult with two or three clinicians and, you know, tell them, you know, sit down for an hour and say, like, I'm in therapy for four years. Here's what I'm working on. What would you do with me? Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It, would that work? You know, hard to know. It's hard to predict on one session or even three whether or not it's a better scenario. But this is how people piece together a decision as to whether or not th- this certain particular therapy is working. Again, the, the main thing is is looking at positive results and talking with your therapist. If that doesn't work, then you can go on to the other things. But anyway. Good answer. All right. Great thorough. I feel like we got to a lot of emails today, Bob. Um, did? Many more than we usually do. Sometimes um, it's true. Yeah. And um but we have twenty twenty three more pages of emails that we haven't gotten to yet. Ooh. So um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we got to uh wait, what did we get to? Is this four pages? Yeah. We we got f- four out of twenty eight. So there's so there's twenty and every week it gets longer and longer. So it gets longer if, and longer. Yeah. yeah. So if you're wanting to ask a question, particularly if you're an upper-tier patron, you, you tend to get bumped up in the list, go to com, click on the contact button, and email us from there. And put something in the subject line or in the first line, hey, Kirk and Bob, something like that, and your email will be copy and pasted into this Google Doc that I use every time Bob and I meet. And you all have really great questions, and it it usually prompts um, at least one of us crying, uh, (laughs) which kind of happened today. Um, All right, everyone. Please take care of yourself out there because you deserve it.